John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 548.IS6402, certificate number 10403, Greek Fire. Fire is neither Greek nor fire. Whoa. Discuss. <clears throat> Busted. <laughs> All right. That's a good episode. <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> Turns out. What a great TED talk this is going to be. Well, it's not. Uh, it was not invented by the Greeks. Right. It was invented by the Greek-speaking former eastern portion of the Roman Empire, the Byzantines. Right. Now, this is... That now, doesn't make them Greek. We get into some interesting historical geography here, you do or do not consider Byzantium to be part of the Roman Empire, the age of Rome. Well, I think my position on this is well known. Mm -hmm. John, anybody who knows me <laughs> has seen my t-shirts right? <laughs> that say Byzantium, not equal sign, Rome. <laughs> They've seen me at the rallies, holding up my signs. Uh, I don't know. I, th I feel, I think of it as a, I don't think of it as Rome. And I know it's important to them that they were Rome. Yeah, it is. Because they kind of, they felt like they were carrying the torch. They sure do. They were did. <laughs> do, possibly. They, they do did. But that's also, you know, the, I mean, Russian Orthodoxy believed that it was the final inheritor of the Roman Empire as a result of its, you know, as Constantinople fell, it all translated up to... Kiev, the last, the last holdouts. We, we have a sense that there must have been a real fortress mentality with Europe just collapsing at this time. And this idea that the West must be defended against, you know, whoever, the Bulgars or the, sure, the, the Saracens <clears throat> or the Huns or the hordes. whoever the hordes are. There's always hordes. Well, and Islam, right? Right. After 700. Right. Um, but it's always hard for me to think of Constantinople as a continuation of Rome, particularly since, sure, they spoke Greek. It's like when Google buys YouTube. No, it's, it's more like, it's like when a sports team moves, actually. Uh-huh. You know, and the... Yeah, that's very, that's very apt. It's like the Oklahoma Thunder. Exactly. Are, do the Indianapolis Colts, do they inherit all the, the history of Baltimore? Baltimore wants that history, you know? Like, Indianapolis doesn't care about Johnny Unitas. You know, I have a guitar that... I bought on the street in Baltimore from a, from a street guy for 25 bucks that has a Baltimore Colts horseshoe carved into the top of it. And uh, I still have it and I still play it. And that, so I feel like connected to that legacy because as well. You, because you bought stolen goods. Yeah, because I, well, who knows? <laughs> it could have been his dad's. I gave him 25 bucks for he it. Had, he, had six, he had six bikes as well. I bought them all. I don't know why he had six bikes, but... <laughs> he had this great collection of purses. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think of it as Rome, but that was a big part of their identity. We are carrying on the, you know, we are the Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah, Latin was their official language and mm -hmm. the, and they were keeping the, sure, all the traditions. They were just, they were holding it. They were like, let us hold this for a minute while you guys sort yourself out down there in Rome. 
Do you uh, think that was the idea? They thought it was a temporary situation? Well, I mean, you know. But we're the temporary HQ for Rome while you guys figure out your cubicle issues. They, they certainly were also trying that over in Avignon. Right. Uh, with their other popes. That seemed so, more like a, we want to replace usage. That's like disrupting. Yeah. We're going <laughs> we're gonna to disrupt the Catholic Church. We have a new way of, of licking envelopes. Download the Avignon <laughs> app and check out our anti-pope. He rules. But so here you are. You're, you're, uh, so we've already started off dissing Byzantium as not Greek. And a lot of people have probably tuned out already. And also Hard not Rome. Byzantines. Um, but also you're saying it wasn't fire. Greek fire. Right. So Greek fire was in a liquid. It was an incendiary weapon that could not be doused by water, which made it perfect, as you can imagine, for naval warfare. I have. I have imagined. <laughs> I've imagined it like, <laughs> even before there was like a whole Game of Thrones episode about this. It was, as the legend goes, it was the invention of one Kalinikos of Heliopolis, mm -hmm. who, despite being named that in some texts, appears to not be from Heliopolis at all. Well, that's the thing. Heliopians are super, <laughs> There's super... no way it's Heliopian. <laughs> <laughs> they are... The Heliopolitans. The he Heliopolitans. Very nice. I, I consider myself a very Heliopolitan <laughs> soul. I come from the Sun City. Don't go back to Sun City. Heliopolis would be in Egypt. It was an Egyptian temple. Um, maybe he was trying to keep people off the scent. He was not from Egypt. In most of the stories, he's a Syrian Jew. Mm -hmm. He's a refugee from some kind of Arab invasion of his homeland. Wow, ripped from the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other way around, I mm -hmm, guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he seeks refuge in Constantinople, the former Byzantium, which, you know, probably the biggest city in the world at the time. Yeah, Until right. I get angry letters from Aztec booster, or I guess not Aztecs. Somebody, somebody's going to... There's gonna, some non-Western city that's bigger than Constantinople, yeah. and I'm going to say that right now. Beijing. Some place you haven't heard of is bigger than the European city and better, probably, and invented more, cooler stuff. Well, you could even argue that Constantinople was... I mean, let's just go the, the whole hog and say it's not European. That's exactly right. I am now one of these super woke people who's like, all the pharaohs were black. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Constantinople is the modern-day Istanbul, which is at the... Phosphorus. Uh, phosphorus between Europe and Asia. So perfectly situated to collect the wisdom of both continents, That's I right. guess. The crossroads and well, also the trade crossroads. Any, any, anything that was coming out of the Black Sea had to go by. That's the narrowest place to cross. In both directions, right? The, nar the narrowest place for anyone on, on a boat. And also if you're going from Asia to, to Europe and don't want to go through Russia. All roads lead to Rome East. Rome East, they, right. They should have just called it like Rome East. Rome, Rome Ost. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, all roads do not lead to Rome. You could go easily from... Rome's on a peninsula. Almost, yeah. almost no lead roads lead to Rome. <laughs> Zero roads lead to Rome. <laughs> but all roads do lead through Constantinople. We're going to change this in the future so that in the future, thousand years hence, the proverb will be no roads lead to Rome. <laughs> Only side roads lead to Rome. Uh, Ring roads. It's the, <laughs> right. it's a the 405. Stay on the beltway. <laughs> Avoid Rome. Traffic's really bad on the S-curves going through uh, Trastevere right now. Uh, Kalinikos came to Constantinople and he brought with him, the story goes, a family secret. His family had a recipe for this unusual substance that could burn through water and in some versions was even ignited by water. What a weird family recipe. <laughs> no, your family doesn't have stuff like this. <laughs> like we're going to make granny's beanie cheese dip and grandpa's jellied gasoline. <laughs> grandpa's like, like viscous napalm yeah. that he's working on in the garage. Get out the crock pot. Grandpa's making napalm for the party. Um, yeah. So historians find this part of the story unlikely. Like maybe there were a whole bunch of Byzantine chemists who were actually whipping this up and perfecting it over a, course of generations. But everyone likes the story of the lone genius then as now. And in this story, that's one Kalinikos. In some versions of the story, uh, it remains a, a family secret. Kalinikos becomes the patriarch of the Lampros family of Greek fire makers. Oh, so he, it's like it's they a, license it. It's they, a family industry. <clears throat> they license the technology. It's like, it's like Microsoft DOS. <laughs> but we know <laughs> that, well, it's more like a, a military uh, contractor, you know, right? He's McDonnell Douglas or whatever, or Dow Corning providing napalm to, Every, the, to yeah. the army. Everybody wants this proprietary uh, kind of military secret. That's how you make the big dollars. But the the Byzantine leaders regarded it 
as uh, a gift from God. They regarded it as their their right as a royal and Christian people. That is so convenient. That's good for them. Like one of the emperors told his son that the recipe for Greek fire had been, quote, shown and revealed by an angel to the great and holy first Christian emperor, Constantine. Hmm. So, oh, oh, the angel went right to the king. Yeah, so 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 there's some uh, there's some retroactive revisionist history, I guess. There's a retcon for you. Uh, that's I, you know that's kind of not uncommon, right? That the um, that the king takes unto himself all of the all of the good ideas. We even do it in America, like yeah. all these people with oil paintings of George Washington kneeling at Valley Forge, something he probably did not do. You know, like we really want to believe. I, I don't think he stood up in that boat, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't seem doesn't seem stable. I've what? been to the crossing there, uh, where the crossing Delaware of the River. Delaware happened. It's not that far. Were, across. were you about to make war on Trenton, New Jersey? You know, the thing were is, you attacking the Hessians have always been problematic for me. <laughs> you just hate Hessians. And I was like, so oh, much. those Hessians. <laughs> and you think they might have still been working in a factory like, somewhere in Trenton? You come on, you guys. Shh, shh. I know it's cold. Let's get over there. Get around Let's on their backside. Kick some Hessian butt. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I bet you. I bet you he was. If he went across in one of those rowboats, I bet you he was sitting down. He was a tall guy. George Washington was six foot five. I was on a little rowboat with my kids this weekend over at the Arboretum. You know, you can rent those little boats oh, from yeah, the University yeah, yeah. of Washington. So we're paddling around the lake and looking at herons and, and basking tortoises. And that really is the kind of thing where, like, if I shifted my weight to my right side. Either my daughter or my wife would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah. Because because the robot would go whoosh. Everybody's going over. So yeah, like standing up in front astride. Particularly with the guy behind you holding a flag. Like, do we need the flag? It's not likely. Um, I totally got lost. Oh, Rhett Constantine. Yes. Um, So they regarded it as a gift from God that they would have the power to smite their adversaries. Because think of the, you know, the symbolic power of just being able to squirt fire at people like an angel would do, like when previously all they're doing is like catapulting rocks. Well, you know, arrows, fire has, was long used in warfare. Um, like flaming arrows over flaming ramparts. arrows and, and with catapults and trebuchets, like, you know, taking a fiery thing and hurling it at your enemy. Or just lighting somebody's fort on fire if they made the mistake of making it out of wood. Yeah. And some of the early uses of this type of thing, pitch, and whatnot, it did require that your spies would go sneak over and like paint your enemy's stuff in the middle of the night. And then the next day hit it with flaming arrows. And all of a sudden all their stuff would, you know, their ramparts or whatever would burst into flame and they would go, how did this happen? And it would some kind of, you know, secret little, uh, commandos had, had gone over and painted the stuff with pitch, but it wasn't Greek fire. That would be my job. I'd be like the guy in the army who just paints things with like resin. (laughs) <laughs> Give me my resin and my brushes. I'm good to go. I'm you like know what? ninja of uh, brushwork. Ken Jennings, first in, last out. <laughs> no, first out. The brush, <laughs> brush guy's not there when lights on fire, right? Like that, that was my understanding first of First in, first out. That's right. Uh, and uh, so this was very effective. So who were their enemies? I oh, hate to put this into a quiz form. So many enemies, John. <laughs> who are who are the Byzantians uh, trying to light on fire? I'm hesitant to even bring this up because I think this is when it turns into a 40-minute John Roderick special. Yeah, but I'm not going to do it. We're talking about what Greek you fire. have to understand about the Saracens. <laughs> the thing about the Fourth Crusade is I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I want to. I want to keep us on track here. We're talking about a technology and not the entire history of. <laughs> warfare in the ancient world. You're a, you're a big picture guy. That's to your credit. That's true. And most people, the reason why most people don't do that is not because they're trying to keep the conversation on track. It's because they don't know anything about the Bulgar Navy. And you know, it's just so much about the Bulgar Navy. <laughs> Too much. You've got, you've got this whole bookshelf over here with just books about the Bulgar Navy there for some is. reason. There it is. We're looking right at it. Uh, so they were fighting um, Arabs mm-hmm. from the South. They were fighting Slavs, the the Rus. You mentioned Kiev. There yep. were there were Slavic powers at this time trying to move down and take over these strategic parts of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. That's right. Uh, <laughs> am I passing the quiz? No, so you're far? doing good. Yeah, even Vikings were at this point making Wait, really yeah making dramatic incursions all the way into the Mediterranean and all the way over to Byzantium. I guess if you have the ship technology, why not go someplace you haven't burned yet? Right, like. And what's interesting, you know, the Vikings were not conquerors. They were raiders. Yeah, they just pillage. They take so stuff they, and leave. But they made it all this way. And, you know, the Vikings came down from the north, too, and followed uh, followed the Volga all the way 
Oh, they into, came. They came. Down, they didn't come around through Gibraltar. They did both. Oh my god! So they, they're the ship raiding Vikings were coming up the Mediterranean, and and uh, what we laughingly refer to as the land Vikings. No, no, no. <laughs> the even land, the land Vikings. No, even the ones coming down through uh, Russia were you know coming up rivers mm-hmm. and so forth. This is, we may have put this in the omnibus before, but this was always what uh, Prince Valiant was doing. This, he was like some Viking guy in 1940s comic strips, but he was always just going to Africa and Newfoundland. Oh, yeah. And I'd be like, come on, Prince Valiant, maybe stick to the fjords, you know, well, like, it's a, it's stick to a, what you know. It's like Flashman or... Um, right, those, uh, uh, those British... People don't know about the Flashman books, right? The Flashman books are great. They're, the premise is that this Victorian-era British officer just happened to be at every single sort of like imperial misadventure that happened between 1840 and, and 1915. Which was less unlikely back then. A lot, really, lot fewer people. It's conceivable. But the, so the, so the books get to talk about, they're like Tintin basically. He, he's like Forrest Gump. He just yeah, goes everywhere. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we definitely want the future to be reading books that a 1950s British child would have loved. That's our goal. <laughs> I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that that is me. And the Bulgars, actually, mm-hmm. not 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 a kind of wheat, but actually, you know, the ancestors of our modern day Balkans. Right. And the Byzantines took all comers. They could squirt terrifying fire jelly at you, and there was really no counter defense. I mean, eventually, their enemies would learn water could not put out Greek fire, but some things could. In, in many, you know, sand could. You can always... Uh, suffocate fire, right? Um, And in other accounts mentioned strong vinegar would work or old urine. Ooh. It says specifically old urine. Like they tried peeing on it. It didn't work. But old urine. Maybe. uh, (laughs) Does that mean, is that urine from an older Saracen? No, I think they were probably collecting it in vats. You don't have to keep an 80 year old man on your boat at all times. (laughs) Guy, you got to piss on the fires again. But this was an era of naval warfare primarily. That's how you would defend Constantinople. Yeah, that you would attack it by sea. Mm-hmm. Much easier to transport troops and, and munitions. Faster. And across, you know, you're taking the short route rather than... Just like George Washington. That's right, right across the river, all standing up in boats. <laughs> uh, but this was also, like, so for most of ancient... Here naval, we go. <laughs> sails were not really uh, the primary way of, uh, of propelling a fighting ship. They, they were rowing. They were rowing. And, and why is that? To be less dependent on the wind? Well, they, they didn't, uh, you know. Sails were crap for a long time. Like you had to invent good sails. Sails were crap. And also your boat was not especially maneuverable. So prior to Greek fire, the number one way that ships fought one another was by ramming. Right. The naval ram. That was, that was the doomsday weapon then. I'm going to bump my boat into you. Yeah. These big bronze cast or bronze covered like pikes that were underwater and, you know, with your, all your rowers pulling hard, you'd steer yourself into the flank of your enemy and penetrate the hull. And then you could get back. That was the, that was the key. You don't want to get stuck to a sinking enemy. Yeah. If you're, if you, if you have a sail and you ram into the enemy, the boat sinks and they drag you down. So then you could, you know, put it in reverse, like everybody, uh, pull back and then watch your enemy sink. But Greek fire changed that dynamic, um, because you didn't want to get, it's a super weapon you could use from a distance. Yeah, you didn't want to get close to those guys. You're not close enough to be rammed. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. The 
Greek fire, the last record of Greek fire being used is in the year 1099 against Pisa. So even Italian city-states coming to maraud uh-huh. um, would face the wrath of, uh, well, the wrath of God, apparently revealed directly by an angel. So this was not an instance where they were they were assaulting Pisa itself, but the Pisans were com- coming to them? Well, they were fighting over shipping routes in the Eastern Mediterranean. So, right. Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere near Greek islands. Right. The, 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 the Ionian side or the Aegean side. The Pisans and the Byzantines were scrapping over trade routes. Because Pisa's on the far side of Italy, so they've no, already made a trip. Nothing's more interesting than a fight over trade routes, as George Lucas learned in the oh, Star Wars boy. prequels. I can, I can already see the scroll. Let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about this for two hours. <laughs> so there was this uh, embargo of Corfu. But this was right in the time of, so the last use of Greek fire was, sounds like it was right in the time of the first crusades. Yes. And there's really not much record of uh, Greek fire being used in the crusades where you'd think it would, that would really be its chance to shine. Like well, yeah. if we're going to burn up some, some brown people, Hey, that's, that's where to do it. But there's uh, no record of that. And it's not clear why Greek fire was the, the, the secret of Greek fire was lost. Well, let's talk about how Greek fire is propelled. Because that's interesting. It's not just that it's hurled. Greek fire actually functioned as a kind of flamethrower. It was essentially a flamethrower. And it didn't start out that way, I think. I think, you know, there are records of kind of more primitive versions of it, you know, soaking cloth balls in it and putting them in a catapult on fire, or um, even inventing grenades, little like terracotta vases that had Greek fire in them. Can you imagine the first grenades are made of clay? How fun. It's a Molotov cocktail, basically. Exactly, except one you had to throw on a potter's wheel. Um, But eventually, it got perfected, so it wasn't just a formula. It was a whole weapons system. I love this. It's like the the Gatling gun on an A-10. And that was, that was kind of the secret of it. You know, we should talk about the formula for Greek fire because that's kind of regarded as the secret that's been lost to the ages. What was in this mysterious stuff? But honestly, the secret recipe might have been how it was prepared and uh, administered, I guess. Right. It, there was a whole system below decks. These uh, two British historians have studied at length and concluded that the system probably worked something like this. There was a bellow, a big bellows pumping a hearth below decks. And above that, there's a big tin barrel full of the oil, which is being heated. And that's being pressurized by an external pump. So it's essentially a pressure cooker. And that, that preheating and pressurizing it is what m- makes it work. Because then you've got a valved bronze tube up to a nozzle, and you've, essentially you've got a siphon you can use to squirt it at enemy ships at, at high pressure like a <laughs> super soaker. And in some cases, I, there are records of uh, Byzantine boats having scary animals carved at the prow, like a, a lion or whatever, a wolf. And it would, the thing would be set up so the nozzle would be right in the thing's mouth. So you'd see this wolf at you just spraying fire from its jaws, a dragon or a lion or whatever. So it's psychological warfare too. That that's pretty metal. Wow. I mean, I'm no uh, I'm no Macedonian. Don't be or, so hard on or, yourself. Or Cappadocian, but that <laughs> seems scary to me. I mean, in a world where you're still where you still do believe that things are gifts from angry gods and that you can harness, I mean, that the gods are taking. Sure, if you think God is on your side yeah. and your enemy thinks Allah is on his side. That can be a fire, literally fire from heaven. Yeah. Well, in particular, this still being the era where gods took a firsthand interest in war, you know, where they're like kind of walking around the battlefield. Right. Like vying with one another. Like the Clash of the Titans thing where they've got kind of a chessboard in Mount Olympus (laughs) and they're looking at uh, where the troops are going, like a big risk board. You know, in, in, in many accounts of this, if you're like some kind of rah-rah the West type, which we are not, of no, course. No, 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 we no, We no, hesitate no. to, you know, we would like to tell you that the Arabs invented algebra. Look, I don't even use the term the West. I don't even say Occident. I just say uh, one planet, one people. <laughs> your, your, your catchphrase. <laughs> I only study uh, astronomy and I only use the Arabic names for all the stars. Excellent. But, uh, you know, for people who are like, you know, Byzantium, the last torch of Rome or whatever, you know, this is what kept that alight in some cases, literally yeah. for centuries. And, well, uh, you know, it seems like a good analogy here would be Kentucky fried chicken. I'm sure that's about what you were about to say. Wow. 
I mean, I always use Kentucky Fried Chicken analogies, but I'm I'm really grasping at where you're going with this. What would you think of as the secret of the success of a Kentucky Fried Chicken? Oh, it's their secret recipe. Everyone, they don't even talk about that anymore, but they used to a lot. Yeah, every, everyone, do they not put that in the ads? When we were kids, every ad would just lord over us the fact that they had 11 herbs and spices. Yeah, and 11. We didn't, and we didn't know what it was, and Popeyes didn't know what it was. I couldn't even name 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> it made me angry. I'm not even sure I could now. <laughs> there, Time. In fact, there are not 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> Frankincense? Sage. Uh, uh, thyme. Myrrh? Did we say thyme? I said thyme. Garlic. Sage. Uh, whatever. Uh, like uh, three spice powder. It's a genius advertising yeah. thing. Coca-Cola uses it too. This idea that we have a secret uh, chemical undiscovered by science that makes our chicken delicious. Yeah. And, you oh, know, when, when, they, when they take the batter to lab, you know, it, it makes people interested enough that they want to know. They've got to know. And when they take the batter labs, they're pretty much like, yeah, it's salt and pepper. You know, yeah, this salt. is what this is what chicken tastes like if you put salt and pepper in the batter. Salt and pepper, um, flour, and but, some green bits. But Harlan Sanders' real innovation was uh, the way he fried the chicken. He would fry it in this high pressure. He would, I think, he would brine it first to keep it moist, and then fry it under really high pressure, which apparently keeps makes the skin nice and crisp while keeping oh, the chicken inside. High moist. pressure chicken cooking. And that's exactly what the Byzantines were doing. You know, we fixate on what. What are the ingredients of this magical floating jelly stuff? But really, they just had some amazing high-tech, high-pressure cooking system below decks. And my understanding is when the when the Greek fire was unleashed from the mouths of these bronze uh, lions, that it made a loud, scary noise. Okay, in many accounts, there is thunder when it co- when the fire comes. That and must have been a weird sound, not. You've never heard it before. Yeah, for people who had never stood next to a blast furnace, as we all have in modern times. Sure, we are. We're standing next to one now. Uh, something, yeah, the blast furnace of my charisma. Like they, ne- <laughs> <laughs> like they never even heard anything loud, right? What was the loudest sound before, uh, you know, James Watt's steam engine? Yeah, blacksmith's hammer. Or uh, just a, a crazy guy yelling, crazy guy yelling. <laughs> like the loudest thing they would have heard would have maybe been maybe an actual lion's would, roar. Yeah, it would have been crazy Xanthos yelling in, in the plaza or yeah, or an animal, an elephant. But most people would not have heard these exotic animals. I right? suppose, I suppose post Rome, it would be the sound of a Colosseum, a, a large a gathering of people. of people all, all screaming. If you, if you live in one of Earth's six cities, sure. You've heard a crowd. Right. In village life, you wouldn't even have heard that. The ocean maybe is the loudest thing. I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time in European villages and uh, like like far out ones. And in, in most cases, the loudest thing is still a transistor radio. Oh, I would have thought some guy's annoying scooter put, put, putting oh, through town. Oh, for sure, for sure. They're, 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 with, uh, with like a stack of eight things on the back. Yeah, they're Lada that somehow the muffler rusted off. <laughs> so the fact that there was a big explosive noise leads some people to think that uh, saltpeter might have been an element in Greek fire. And in fact, this could have been the first use of gunpowder in the West. I'll, you know, the, I, I hasten to add that the Chinese had invented that, I'm sure, centuries ago. Right. They were already having elaborate Fourth of July displays. They had the fireworks displays from the Fellowship of the Ring <laughs> while we were still um, in caves drawing pictures of fireworks on our caves. Yeah, they were blowing smoke rings through smoke rings. <laughs> and, we're, <laughs> and we're literally drawing fireworks on a cave wall like and then there's going to be one that goes like a kid whose parents can't afford disneyland so so this uh special mixture is some sort of uh it's not just napalm but also now has saltpeter in it is is, it's a kind of half and half if you're in the field of trying to recreate greek fire which you and I both are, and that's what we spend our weekends doing. Mm-hmm. The main, the central mystery now is there are essentially two schools. Did it have saltpeter or did it not? Because there's widespread agreement about the rest. Can you imagine being an academic who is so far up this tree that this is something you're arguing with other academics So far about? up his own tree. I, I so can imagine being an academic like that. I, I wonder if I I've done the that. wrong thing in my life. Imagine the lengthy emails you could write to your rivals. Dear sir. An open letter. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, you mistake the evidence of the potassium nitrate. <laughs> your failure to accept my saltpeter theory puts you in the cast of men who are being Rejected by history. So there were a bunch of 19th century French scholars who were pretty sure that there was saltpeter based on the evidence of the thundering noise. Uh Um, There are other accounts that uh, Greek fire could not merely survive getting wet, but actually would ignite when 
wet when water was poured on it, which again would make it pretty cool in Whoa. naval warfare scenario. And there are chemicals that do ignite in water. It's conceivable. Quicklime. Unlikely. When you add water to quicklime, it creates, what would that be, an endothermic reaction? Anyway, it gets hot very quickly. You know this. Yes. Like, you've got all the bodies you've buried. <laughs> <laughs> like, before <laughs> before you When you pour lime feet. on them, be careful not to get it wet. Before you saw off the feet and toss them in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Yeah, then your mother-in-law is going to wonder what's going on in the backyard. Um, so that's not the only thing. I mean, that's the only thing you use quicklime for. But, you know, because it's useful in a lot of other kinds of scenarios because it creates heat when wet. So conceivably, there could be something like quicklime or calcium phosphide, which I hear uh, people at that time could have produced by soaking bones in urine. Oh, again, <laughs> urine is such a uh, jack-of-all-trades element. Maybe that's why we've lost all these years. technologies. They were all urine dependent. And once we created like better ways to sluice away our urine, we lost out on all the, all this great tech. Well, you know, we spend so much time fingering our little objects, uh, back in, uh, which, uh, what, what do you, what are we <laughs> Well, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, this is not how I pee. Our, no, our, <laughs> our little iPads and pods right, and heads. Right. Uh, we've got all these little gizmos that, that attract our attention. But back in the old days, all you had was a rock, a bone and a bag of pee. Yeah. You have a rock and a bone and you're like, what third thing could I add? How could I, what if I, I add these to pee? There's nothing left, but I do kind of need to pee. What if I cover this with pee? It's an ingredient you have to produce three or four times a day. It's natural right. that you try it in some of these recipes. It has a lot of qualities too. It's it has interesting variations in color and smell. It's um, I'm yeah. inter I'm interested to hear what other qualities. That well, you, it's a fa great, so fascinate you about your. It's a preservative, right? It's a seasoning. It's one of the eleven <laughs> herbs and spices. It's uh, every morning the colonel would get up and pee in the vat. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we couldn't think of 11. There's only 10. That's right. There's 10 and the Colonel 11 Sanders spice was tea. inside us all along, <laughs> specifically in our bladders. Yeah. Um, so there may have been something like that in there, something really caustic that would produce high temperatures in water. But again, that could have just been, you know, these stories get bigger and bigger every time they're told. Most of our stuff about Greek fire is secondary sources, either by and probably by Byzantines making them want to uh, themselves sound scarier. Well, and also I think that something like this that isn't extinguished by water, but would hit water and dissipate, or like, you know, it would spread across the surface of water. Mm -hmm. It might appear to be igniting water when really sure. it's just, you know, it's if just proliferating. If you the guy lighting the guy lighting it or in the heat of battle. the other, One of the other Greek names for Greek fire was pure coletikon, sticky fire. Oh, yeah. And that's the main thing about it. It was, it was jellied like, like modern day napalm. And that's probably because it had naphtha, which is where napalm gets its name. Naphtha, and naphtha is a, like a mineral spirit. It's, yeah. It's a petroleum distillate. It's not too different from kerosene. I think, you mm -hmm. know, easily ignitable and they would use some, some kind of evergreen resin maybe to thicken it. Mm -hmm. And that would give it this kind of sticky quality. You know, you um, can make napalm now by just putting uh, laundry detergent in gasoline. And the laundry detergent has enough of these sort of chemical properties that it creates a kind of are we doing a Gel. bit or are you now some kind of Alex Jones podcast where we instruct rural people <laughs> on how to build anti-government ordinance? Sorry, forget that I ever said that. Do not add that thing that John <laughs> says didn't work. To gasoline and create homemade napalm. Just pee on a Tide pod and go throw it at your local post office or DMV. When I was a teenager, I was really interested in this kind of stuff. And, Shocker. And I know. <laughs> and uh, at the time you could, I mean, in Anchorage, you could buy black powder at Fred Meyer at the at your local grocery store. Black like, powder is essentially gunpowder. It's some simple. Yeah. It's a formulation of it. And there are hundreds of formulations of it for, for smokeless powder rifles and for, you know, building homemade cannons and stuff. And it, they were on the shelves and not even behind the counter. There were enough people at Fred Meyer wanting to build a homemade cannon that there was a section. Did, did the aisle say homemade cannon gear? It, it was all there. Like this was before the NRA era, the, this contemporary era when, rifles and guns the, are the politicization are of super politicized or not. Yeah. Right. In the seventies and eighties, it was like, if you're out trying to, I mean, it was considered, I think more sporting that you hunt with a black powder rifle. If you were such a good hunter that sure. it got boring, you're an outdoorsman, <laughs> you're a scout, right? Why not uh, load your own, right? I mean, a, a lot of people in Alaska loaded their own bullets. So they had, they had machines in their garage where they would take, you know, all the componentry, including black powder and make, 
actual like jacketed bullets for regular rifles. Jeez. Um, and so there were all these different formulations and artisanal bullets. Yeah. Oh, that's well, going to come back. That'll, you know, millennial gun ownership will be saved by, by artisanal by, bullet by makers. craft bullets. There are still, I mean, I, I still have friends in Alaska who make their own, you know, who load their own shot. Cause you can, you can determine how many grains of black powder you put in it. That's, to, that's your handicap. <laughs> I'm such a good hunter. <laughs> I'm giving this bullet absolutely no chance. But <laughs> that's, we, that's better than the other, the opposite thing to do, which is to start hunting in a more dangerous game until eventually you're hunting man. The most dangerous game. <laughs> in, your, in your private animal estate. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But I, uh, when I was about 14 years old, I got, because we were out making little bombs with this uh, stuff that we bought at Fred Meyer. And you know, you could, I mean, a 13 year old go up with a canister of black powder and they would just sell it to you. They didn't, they had no beef about it because apparently there were enough of us doing it. But so we were making bombs and then we didn't feel like it was enough of a challenge. And so we started to try and make our own black powder. And it's really just three ingredients. It's sulfur, saltpeter, and charcoal. Do you like it when I um, compare everything you say to a Star Trek episode? Go ahead. There's a classic Star Trek where Captain Kirk is on some planet having to fight this lizard king. It's not Jim Morrison. It's literally a lizard mm. king. Mm -hmm. And he finds... How, how do you know it's not Jim Morrison? He takes off the mask. <laughs> he literally was a lizard this king. This is the... Uh, he, uh, Captain Kirk finds, you know, sulfur. He finds saltpeter. He finds charcoal. Yeah, saltpeter's the oxidizer. The other two are fuels. He combines right. them, puts them in a big bamboo pipe, and essentially makes a bazooka and shoots the lizard king in the face. Oh, Kirk. It's the most metal thing he ever did. Again, with There's, the... Pow. It just shows you what that guy could accomplish when there were no women on the planet to seduce. Well, as someone who has when it's taken... just him and a lizard guy, he decides not to have sex with it. He Are you sure it wasn't a, in the face. it wasn't a lizard lady? That was why he would have like sexed her up. Otherwise. That would be the twist. Um, it is surprisingly difficult to get the measurements of those three ingredients right because Kirk did it first time, and that is unlikely because I tried it for weeks and weeks and weeks and created mixtures that did burn and explode my garage, <laughs> but, but, uh, no, we were always out in the swamp doing these experiments, but, but to actually get it. And even when we had like the, the formula to actually get it right and mixed properly was no small feat. And only a couple of times did I make my own gunpowder that actually would have worked as a kind of explosive. So I wonder if that's the deal with Greek fire, you know, just because we know the four or five things it likely had, we don't know the proportions. No, it's extremely complicated to make these chemical formulations and do it repeatedly and do it reliably. The Bulgars and the Arabs actually, at different points in these war naval skirmishes, they, they captured warships, flame ships. They had the fire ships, so they had the whole mechanism. They had samples of the goop, and they still never got it. Couldn't do it, yeah. So... I'm not saying something about the inherent stupidity of Bulgars. No, no, no. The Bulgars were just as smart as anyone else. Like we could have a hundred percent future Bulgarian audience. Maybe they will be the only survivors. Them and the Hessians. Well, you know, Bulgarians are different from Bulgars. They, although they take their name they from They think Bulgars. of themselves as the descendants, I assume. They do. But you know, the funny thing about Byzantium is that because they spoke Greek, the Greeks, uh, contemporary Greeks and Greek you know, writers of the 19th and 20th century have identified it as a Greek empire. The glorious Greek people. Yeah, this was a Greek uh, Greek empire. And a lot of sort of Western, like English professors supported this idea, but they weren't Greeks at all. 
Um, so there's, there's yeah, it's just this, like you and I speak English, but we are not we, at all from English. England. No, definitely no. No, we do not eat mushy boiled vegetables. But it's interesting how people lay claim to histories, but that's perhaps another episode in the omnibus. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody thinks it's over now. Well, the thing that interests me about Greek fire is how romantic it seems. You know, the quest for this amazing, beautiful, th think what a tableau it must have been to see these ships breathing fire at each other. You know, we think of it as such a romantic, adventurous time. If you don't think about if the uh, other side of the tableau of your enemy burning alive. Well, it's essentially napalm. Like, it's <laughs> it's as if I would have nostalgia for the Vietnam-era use of napalm. Oh, those were the days back when I could flay the skin off of my enemies and watch them scream as they're... Because, uh, you know, napalm came out of World War II when they would put latex into gasoline. And we've talked about the rubber shortages before, uh, you know, once... Japan took over all the plantations. The, the allies couldn't get rubber. Right. We were reusing tires. So we couldn't do that anymore. So these Harvard brain trust guys put their heads together to try to come up with an artificial solution. And they found a powder. They made a chemical that was a powder you could put in gasoline. Better living through chemistry. It and was it, called Tide Laundry Detergent. <laughs> they invented <laughs> Tide Laundry Detergent. There's a sponsorship we lost. Um, and, and that was napalm. It was, uh, you know, you could spray it at stuff for the flamethrower and it would stick and it did terrible things. This is how we things. firebomb Tokyo, right? Uh, with the jellied gasoline, right? Yeah. yeah don't. And Dresden. Cause they, you know, Tokyo in particular had, you know, houses made of paper with roofs made of wood and it didn't take a whole lot of tech to get that to go up. Right. You know, in Vietnam, it was great for clearing ground. It had, and it, like in the, just as in the Greek fire era, it had tremendous you know, as a psychological weapon, it had a huge impact. Imagine your enemy is able to squirt fire at you and it sticks to you and it's the most painful thing you can imagine. And so in the West, people were, you know, saw these very vivid images, the famous little, little girl running down a road naked, having been napalmed, you know, that probably kind of ended the war right there. You know, once you see that game over. And napalm's now banned for use against civilians uh, by 1980 UN convention, the same one that bans landmines, booby traps, uh, later laser weapons. <laughs> Lasers have been banned. No, by have the they UN. really? Sorry. What about the Sorry Moonraker? What about the sonic weapons that create a brown sound that makes the enemy poop their pants? Yeah, what about the like the the bad guy in Black Panther? He's got sonic weaponry. Is yeah. that can, is the Geneva Accords just going to take a look at blind eye at that? Well, the Geneva South Accords African were jerk? not able to see Wakanda, so they aren't able to <laughs> like make those determinations. There are currently talks about expanding the same accords to um, autonomous robots, not just drones, but robots where you program them and they start marching and just have an algorithm that tells them how to make war, which clearly is how our civilization well, will end. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> my, my stock in Boston Dynamics just plummeted. Um. There's no comply. Uh, this uh, this treaty is from the early '80s. The U.S. did not sign it until uh, the beginning, the first day, in fact, of the Obama administration. Oh, really? Which I assume means we've unsigned it at some point in the last couple <laughs> of years. Um, but they're still out. Napalm is still there's little um, certification of compliance, and napalm is still allowed against military targets, and you can use it against civilians if you can demonstrate that it's, uh, you know, in classic Catch Twenty Two fashion, needed to protect life. Right. <laughs> that's that's when you can. You're allowed to burn it. these civilians as long as what one one uh, one uh, American soldier who's working in a warehouse is not uh, doesn't have his feelings hurt. Yeah, it's that guy. That's contemporary warfare. Some Hessian factory worker. Do you know what happened to Napalm Girl? By the way, uh, no. I re just read up on it. She was told she would die. Instead, she had 17 surgeries and skin transplants. Oh no! Survived. Uh, you know, became kind of a symbol of uh, imperialist. Oppression within Vietnam in Southeast Asia, yes, within now communist Vietnam, was sent to Cuba to be educated. Uh, went on her honeymoon to Moscow, but in the in the manner of the early nineties or the in the eighties and nineties, stopped off in Newfoundland and defected to Canada. Ha! Lol. <laughs> Owned. <laughs> now who won the Vietnam War? Canada. So she actually lives in Canada to this day, and there's um, new laser surgeries that I guess have been able to reduce some of the scarring from, uh, you know, the, that famous AP photo of, of the attack. Wow. But it's just interesting how, you know, we think of Greek fire as such a fascinating, romantic, lost idea to the ages, but really sure. it's, and it, and it's so, awful probably. So a after this era, after the, the first crusade era, Byzantium survived for uh, many centuries, but what happened to Greek fire? Why did it fall out of favor? 
you know, it could be linked to the decline of the Byzantine Empire. Although, as you say, if it disappeared in 1099, there was more Byzant Byzantium to go. I guess it's not Byzantium. It's Constantinople by then. Um, well, Istanbul, Constantinople. I feel like a lot of why, people don't why? know about Byzantium because they might be gents didn't put the original Greek name in the song. Right. What, it's, it's not their song. It's an old novelty song they covered. So it's not their fault. Why does Byzantium... <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't even. The lyrics would have got in there. pretty Byzantine. Yeah. Um, that, that that actually makes the 40th reference to They Might Be Giants that we've done in this show. I think our bias is is starting to be revealed. Pro nerd music. Yeah. Um, it could have been that the Byzantines lost access to the parts of the empire that produced some of these ingredients. And and there were innovations in naval warfare and certainly more maneuverable sailing ships, but also strategies changed where the um, Muslim armies realized, don't get close enough to the Greek ships to let them burn you. They would soak um, animal hides or pieces of felt in vinegar or something that was fireproof, and they could use that to shield against. Yeah, it was no longer a, a doomsday weapon. But then gunpowder allowed for cannons. And guns, and that puts you, you know, that puts you at a distance from flames, so you could fight one another by shooting. Which, oh boy, those talk about the romantic era that began with being able to shoot each other, and a, you know, send giant metal spheres, you know, right through somebody's the side of their ship, and then a couple heads. Good times. <laughs> oh, and then you could load load those cannonballs with with urine. <laughs> urine makes everything better. I guess, really, the moral of the story is probably any romantic view of old-timey warfare is probably completely misleading. If anything, war was probably even more brutal and unpleasant then as it is now, right? Well, yeah, because without antibiotics, war was infinitely worse because most of the people all of that these died— slow gut wounds. <laughs> they died like—they died over the course of weeks. That really should be the motto of our time, fewer slow gut wounds. I'm, I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. And that concludes Greek Fire, entry 548.IS6402, certificate number 10403 in the omnibus. Listeners, in the future. I wonder which of our technologies are lost to them, by the way. Just as well, we lost Greek fire and Damascus steel and whatever. We have presumed, that's right, we, we don't still don't know how to make Damascus steel really in the same way that... That should be a, that should be a separate entry. Let's sure. do that differently, yeah. Um, I think there are two ideas, right, with this, the whole omnibus concept is either that all technology was lost and they've only just now recovered the ability to play our platinum record. The first thing they did was they found this record and they're like, we better reverse engineer a, That's right. a we, record player. We had a this. stylus taped to it and they were like... As you do. And I think probably at that point in time it, with their, you know, their many tentacles, they were learning to play Dixieland jazz. And we just taught them uh, the third invention, which would be napalm. Good job. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, just find some Tide laundry detergent that hasn't clumped. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I think they are either reverse engineering this or they are a highly advanced civilization. But what if, they're so, what if they're highly advanced but there's still some little thing they can't do, just like us in Greek fire? Oh, Like, right. what if they see YouTube videos of Rubik's Cubes and they're like, how the... F it turns on every axis. How would you even... And how they can't figure it out. Yeah, even though they had them and could break them apart and see the mechanism, they just couldn't do it. They're incredibly dumb. And what ends up happening, I think, is that they just can't play the blues. Like... UFOs could come down here and know everything, but can they play the blues? The blues will be the one lost invention. Yeah. That's the, probably it. You have to feel the blues. And you have to believe in a devil to sell your soul to him. Oh, hello. Right. They may be too advanced to play the blues. There's no, there's no atheist blues. I got the, I woke <laughs> up this morning. Oh, no, 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 no. I got on the internet. <laughs> oh, no, no, wow. I argued with an Episcopalian guy. Uh, but uh, one thing that we hope you have not lost is the ability to look at social media because social media, it turns out, is the true god of our time. It's the best. And uh, Ken and I always talk about how much we get out of social media, how much it... We find it rewarding. It has no uh, corrosive pro properties to our brains at all. That's absolutely true. Love, but love, love it. You can spend as much time perusing social media as you want and it only benefits you it's and your family. Kind of like cocaine. Not addictive at all, just gives you a little boost to get you through the day. Precisement. 
anyway, you can go to our social media feeds at John Roderick, at Ken Jennings, at Omnibus Project on all of the various media. Ken is routinely hilarious. I routinely have to bite my knuckles to not say things that are going to get me in trouble. You have fun Instagram photos like the detritus of 21st century life. I do. You can see a lot about what the, the worlds we live in through my Instagram. John photos. Roderick's America. I just take pictures of my dog and food and I put them on there with no captions. You are one of these Depression-era guys wandering around. I don't do either of those things. I hate those Instagram feeds. No, I do. I go out and uh, I go out with my medium-format camera and take pictures of Dust Bowl farmers. It's great that you have the last government grant to do that. You're a very, <laughs> very lucky. Most of the rest of those expired in 1937. They call me John Ansel Adams Roderick. Um, also, you can email us, which we encourage you to do because we like reading personal messages. Uh, from our present time and the future at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. That will get directly to us when we remember to check our email. Uh, also on Facebook, if you still go to that cesspool. We just said we love social media. Oh. You, what need, it, you need to commit to this bit, John. The thing, the, what I yes and. <laughs> when I say cesspool, I mean it in the Byzantian fashion. Something, of like, something that's full of urine because yeah, it's awesome. Giant that of old urine that is used to put out napalm. And pictures of dogs and sandwiches. It's called Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. Listeners, from our vantage point, we speak to you from the distant past, and we have no idea how long our civilization will survive before all technology is lost, just as Greek fire was. We hope and pray that that catastrophe may never come, uh, even if it's the good kind, even if it's for some Elon Musk singularity. I don't want those guys to be right. I'm increasingly less enamored with the future that Elon Musk has envisioned for us ever since he started dating that pop star. I'm worried that he doesn't want to live like, uh, Grime, like, Grimes is the queen of future earth, John. Watch what you say. I'm sorry, Grimes. But you know, I always thought of him as a Drax character from Moonraker who's, who's wearing a, uh, a Nehru jacket and living on a space station. Sure. But it just seems like he's somebody at Coachella now. <laughs> just backstage at Coachella, like, wandering around. It's not as inspiring. Maybe it wasn't gross. Maybe it was the UN banning laser weapons. And he was like, well, crap, there was oh, my whole plan. Rawr. I'm just going to go to Burning Man. But if the worst comes soon, whether that's a Elon Musk nerd singularity future or a giant fireball from the heavens, uh, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But we hope that the fiery hand of God will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>